Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to take a second to thank all the people who support the show and help make it sustainable, both on Patreon and by signing up to Audible via the Dark Histories affiliate link. You can find links to both of those in the show notes if you're interested, or you can help out just by sharing the show with people who you think might be interested, on social media or with all the good people you might know. Alright, let's get on with the episode. Cheers. In 1959, a group of nine experienced Russian ski hikers trekking through the Aral Mountains were the victims of an unexplained disaster that left no survivors. Eerily, the area of the ancient incident was called Kolatsyakul, or in English, Dead Mountain. To this day, there's still no concrete explanation for what happened to the party. However, theories range from an avalanche to secret military testing, from UFOs to an animal attack, and things stranger still. Though sensationalised over the years to bolster certain claims, the story at its core still remains a mystery. Here we tell the story, as it happened, of what has become known as the Jatlov Pass incident. This is Dark Histories, and the facts are worse than fiction. Good evening, or day or morning, depending on when you're listening to this. I forget, it's not radio, is it? This is Dark History, Season 1, Episode 4, with the Dyatlov Pass incident this week, which is a huge mystery. It's super famous, I guess. Everyone sort of knows of it and has heard of it. I wanted to really do an episode on it. Wasn't content with just doing the usual nonsense. So I was fortunate enough to find a lot of the original Russian sources and with the help of a translator managed to sort of basically use all the primary sources which is is really awesome this is the Jatlov Pass incident in 1959 Soviet Russia was a vast sprawling landscape from the city of Moscow to the snow-capped mountains of Siberia many people were interested in exploring the wilderness for sport and adventure Known as ski tourism, trekking on skis through challenging terrain was a popular pastime amongst many young people. A group of hikers, formed of students and graduates of Aral Polytechnical Institute, were planning one such trip in January of 1959. The group's main goal was to reach the mountain of Ortorton, amongst the Aral Mountains on the Siberian border. Although the mountains were a gentle climb, the weather would average minus 15 degrees C and the planned trail was described as Category 3, the most difficult to traverse, demanding a very high level of fitness. All members of the group, however, were well experienced and they were qualified to take on the route, and the atmosphere as they stepped onto the train that would take them north from Sverdlovsk was relaxed and easygoing, prepared for the adventure ahead. The trekking group was ten strong, eight men and two women, all but one of them were students or graduates of the Aral Polytechnical Institute. Igor Dyatlov was the leader of the group. He was 23 years old, a radio enthusiast and studying engineering. A keen inventor, he had built a radio and portable stove for hikers and he carried the stove on the trip. He was reportedly dating Zinaida Kolmogrova, another student on the expedition. Alexander Kalevatov was 24 years old and a student of nuclear physics. 
He had transferred to Aral Polytechnical Institute in his second year from the All-Union Polytechnical Institute. Prior to joining Aral Polytechnical Institute, he had worked for a secret Soviet institute whose purpose was to supervise the Soviet nuclear industry. Alexander Zolotaryov was the only member not affiliated with the university. He was 38 years old, a hiking instructor and World War II veteran. He joined the team in order to add points to his degree, allowing him to gain the rank of Master Instructor. Yuri Kravonoshenko was 23 years old. He was a construction and hydraulics student and the joker of the group. He played the mandolin and he took it on many hikes, including this one. Ludmila Dubninia was 20 years old. She was the youngest of the group, a dedicated communist studying economics. On a previous hike, she had been accidentally shot by a fellow hiker who was cleaning his gun. Nikolai Tibble Brignol was 23 years old. He was a graduate of Aral Polytechnical Institute, where he had studied civil construction. The son of a French communist, he was born in a concentration camp for political prisoners. He was often noted to be taking care of other hikers on previous trips and had promised his parents that this would be his last expedition. Rustam Slobodin was 23 years old and another graduate. He was born in Moscow to an affluent family and had studied mechanical engineering. Yuri Doroshenko was 21 years old. He was a radio engineering student. He had gained infamy around the university for having charged down a giant bear with nothing but a geologist's hammer on a previous camping trip. He was previously in a relationship with Zenaida Kolmogrova, who was now dating Igor Dyatlov, though kept good relations with both. Zenaida Kolmogrova was 22 years old. She was a radio engineering student. She was outgoing and lively, well-liked around the school. On a previous trip, she had been bitten by a viper, but she continued regardless. Yuri Yudin was 21 years old. He was an economics student and he suffered from rheumatism, an infliction he would become thankful for, as we shall soon see. On the 23rd of January, the group left Sverdlovsk and travelled some 200 miles north by train to the city of Ivdel, arriving at midnight on the 25th of January. They stayed the night before then travelling by truck further north to the northern frontier town of Fizal, where they arrived at 4.30pm, and again stayed the night and prepared to begin their trek towards Ortorton the next day. Before leaving, Igor Dyatlov agreed with the sports club that the group would send a telegram confirming their safe return to Vizal no later than February the 12th. They borrowed horses for the first leg of the trek that would take them to an abandoned geologist village. They stayed the night in the abandoned village, however Yuri Yudin fell ill and after collecting a few minerals for the university the next morning, he left the group and returned to Vizal. This turn of events makes Yuri Yudin the only surviving member of the expedition. The group is now nine, seven men and two women. The group continued to travel along the river until the 31st of January. The cold weather dropped to minus 24 degrees centigrade at night and they estimated their travel time to be around one mile per hour. On the 31st of January, they left the river and they made for the base of Kolyas Mountain 
the local indigenous tribe of Mansai named the mountain. Its meaning in English can be translated as dead mountain. Although it sounds creepy, it meant there was nothing there to hunt. But like I say, it certainly sounded creepy. In a diary that the group was collectively keeping, the final entry is written. Wind is not strong. Snow cover is 1.22 metres. Tired and exhausted, we started the preparations for the night. Not enough firewood. Frail damp furs. We started fire with logs, too tired to dig a fire pit. We had supper right in the tent. It's warm. It's hard to imagine such a comfort somewhere on the ridge with a piercing wind hundreds of kilometres away from human settlements. The group left the camp base late on the 1st of February, leaving some of their gear behind on a raised platform that they could collect on their return trip. They walked just two and a half miles before setting up camp on the slopes of Kolatsyakul. Here they were just 10 miles from their destination of Wartorton. Around 6 or 7pm, they ate dinner. Tired but in good spirits, they prepared to sleep for the night. They were not to be seen alive again. As the days passed, the 12th of February came and went. Despite Igor Dyatlov's promise to telegram the school no later than the 12th, deadlines for returns were frequently missed on such trips, and so no one had any reason for undue concern. There had been reports of heavy snowstorms around the area that they were known to be trekking, and most assumed the group had taken shelter for several days, delaying their trip. Dyatlov himself had told Yuri Yudin before he left the group to return to Vizel he expected their return to be later than the 12th. And so it was that no one paid much mind to the group's silence until the 20th of February, when members of the expedition's family insisted to the local head of the Communist Party that they needed to send out a search team. The first group sent out were student and teacher volunteers, led by the head of the military department of the Aral Polytechnical Institute, Colonel Georgi Smenovich Ortyukov. They had little luck on their own, and the military became involved with the search a few days later. On the 25th of February, a ski trail was finally found and presumed to be that of Dyatlov's group. The search followed up the ski trail, and the next day, the 26th of February, the search and rescue crews discovered the tents of Dyatlov's group on the slopes of Kolatsyakul. The tents were found ripped and torn, with gaping holes in their sides. Upon investigation, they concluded that the tents had been cut open from the inside. The tents contained all of the group's belongings, including money, clothing and boots. They found footprints leading away from the tents that seemed to show people walking barefoot in a calm and orderly manner. Outside of the tent, they found a pair of skis sticking out of the snow, an ice pick and Igor Dyatlov's jacket. They also found Dyatlov's flashlight and upon turning it on, found that it was in working condition. The following day, the 27th of February, search and rescue teams followed the barefoot trails leading down the mountainside towards the edge of a forested area and they found the remains of a small fire below a large cedar tree. The tree's branches were all torn off upwards of 15 feet from the ground. Later forensic investigation of the tree found traces of skin embedded in the tree bark. Near to the fire, they found the two bodies of Yuri Doroshenko and Yuri Kravonoshenko. Both had no footwear. Doroshenko was wearing a short-sleeved shirt and shorts, along with socks on both feet, 
whilst Kravonoshenko was found wearing a long-sleeved shirt, underwear and only one sock on his left foot. Soon after, the search team discovered three more bodies between the cedar and the tent, those of Igor Dyatlov, Zinaida Komogrova and Rustam Slobodin. Dyatlov was found dressed but without shoes, wearing one woolen sock and one cotton sock. His fists were clenched in front of his chest. Zinaida was better dressed, wearing several sweaters and three pairs of socks, though again had no footwear, and Rustam Slobodin, also better dressed, wore several layers of clothing and one felt boot on his right foot. It was to be several months before the rest of the bodies were found, once the thaw had set in and the snow began to melt. Once the snow had melted, the search and rescue team finally uncovered the lost four bodies from the Dyatlov expedition. They were found under four metres of snow in a ravine 75 metres further into the woods from the cedar tree. Alexander Zolotaryov, Nikolai Turobrinyol, Alexander Kolevatov and Lubmilia Dubnina's bodies were all well dressed and found in an improvised man-made shelter. Alexander Zolotaryov was found wearing a hat, scarf, several layers of clothing as well as leather handmade shoes. He had a pen in one hand and a notepad in the other. Curiously, he had a camera under his clothing. Though the film was water damaged, it was his second camera and Yuri Yedin later mentioned that no one seemed to have any knowledge of the camera's existence on the trip. Nikolai Thibault Brignol wore a hat, scarf, several layers of clothing and felt shoes. Alexander Kolevatov had no hat or shoes, however he had several pairs of socks and several layers of clothing. Lyubmilia Dubnina was wearing two sweaters, one of which belonged to Kravonoshenko, one of the expedition members found dead by the cedar tree. She had apparently improvised footwear by cutting a sweater into halves and wrapped them around her feet, although only the half on her left foot remained. The investigation into the desk concluded that they had all died six to eight hours after their last meal, around 11.30 to 1.30am. They had all left their tents of their own accord and no other people had been around the site. There were no survivors. Six of the members had died of hypothermia, whilst three had suffered fatal injuries, though they were not inflicted by another human being. Many of the injuries, including all on the hypothermia victims, were reportedly received during agony of death. The investigation's conclusions, however, did not even tell half of the story. The autopsy reports of the nine bodies make grim reading. Not simple hypothermia victims, in contrast, many of the bodies had severe wounds and there were many strange details that were not sufficiently commented on during the autopsy reports. Yuri Doroshenko's underwear was badly ripped. He had liver mortis spots on the back of his neck which were not consistent with the way in which his body was found. This meant that his body had had to have been moved after his death. The hair on the right side of his head was burnt and he had blood on his ears, nose and lips. He had upwards of 10 various bruises and abrasions throughout his body, including shoulders, armpit, arms and legs. His right cheek was covered in a grey foam coming from his open mouth, suggesting a force of some kind upon his chest. The cause of death was listed as hypothermia. Yuri Kravonoshenko's body had several bruises and abrasions, along with bruises on his head. He had apparently chewed off part of the back of his right hand, cause of death was listed as hypothermia. 
Igor Dyatlov's body had bruises and abrasions on his face, ankles and knees, as well as bruises on the backs of his hand and knuckles. Cause of death was listed as hypothermia. Zinaida Kologorova's body had several bruises and abrasions on her face, missing skin on the back of her right hand, and a 29cm long bright red bruise on the lumbar region of the right side of her torso. Cause of death was listed as hypothermia. Rustam Slobodin's body had bruises and abrasions on his face, hemorrhages of his temporal muscles on his head, blood from his nose, bruises on the backs of his hands and knuckles, and a fracture on the frontal bone of his skull. Cause of death was listed as hypothermia. Alexander Zolotaryov's body was found with eyeballs missing, missing soft tissue around his left brow, with one bone exposed, an open wound on the right side of his skull, and ribs 2, 3, 4, 5 and 6 on the right side were broken. Cause of death was listed as fatal injuries. Nicholas Thibault Brignol's body had multiple skull fractures, centering around the temporal region but extending around his skull and a hemorrhage on his right forearm. Cause of death was listed as fatal injuries. Alexander Kalevatov's body had a lack of soft tissue around his eyes, with his skull exposed, a broken nose, an open wound behind his left ear and a deformed neck. Cause of death was listed as hypothermia. Lubmilia Dudnina's body had missing soft tissue around the nose, eyes and cheeks, damaged tissue around her left temporal bone, missing eyeballs, broken and flattened nose, missing tongue. Her right side ribs 2, 3, 4 and 5 were broken and on the left 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 and 7 ribs were all broken. She had a massive hemorrhage in the heart's right atrium. She also had blood in her stomach, suggesting that her tongue was removed while she was still alive though there is evidence that this was also caused by natural phenomena. Cause of death was listed as fatal injuries. Many of the group's injuries could be attributed to animal scavenging, however the presence of blood shows that they would have happened prior to death, not after. The bruises on several of the members' backs or hands and knuckles are not consistent with falling, whereby you would expect the palms to be injured and the head and rib injuries are often extreme. The doctor who inspected the body said that the forces that caused the injuries exceeded that capable of another human and were equal to the effects of a car crash. Many of the doctor's reports showed higher than normal levels of radiation on many of the items of clothing. Strange details such as Jatlov's jacket being taken off outside of the tent, his flashlight in working order discarded and cameras that were going missing whilst other cameras not known to be there showing up raise questions. All of this is aside from the largest question of all. What made the group leave their tent in the dead of night in such a hurry as to have them all in various states of dress, cutting themselves out through the side of their tents, and then would cause all of the injuries? The biggest clues were the rolls of film and diary found at the campsite allowing us to piece together the events leading up to the fateful night, and perhaps, in the case of the rolls of film, giving us clues as to what may have happened to the expedition. The official investigation's final conclusion was that a compelling natural force had caused the deaths, though for three years after the incident, the pass was closed to tourists. The inquest was wrapped up quietly and all files were sent to an archive, where they were only uncovered 31 years later. So what did happen on Dead Mountain that night?
One of the most obvious theories is that the past suffered an avalanche, capturing the victims and the group in its wake. The avalanche caused injuries and panic amongst the victims, and with the tents covered in snow, it explains why the tents were cut from the inside. It could also explain why the groups retreated away from the tents. Perhaps they moved in fear of a second avalanche. However, whilst almost the first logical step when considering the Jatlov Pass incident, an avalanche is not as likely as can be first assumed. The slope that the group camped on was not very steep, nor was it very tall. Modern analysis has shown that the location is not conducive to conditions that would lead to an avalanche. Furthermore, the footprints leading away from the tents suggest that the injuries suffered by the victims happened away from the camp, not in it. There are photos which show items of the group's gear stuck into the snow, which are still standing four weeks later when the camp was discovered by the search team, along with the front of the tents. The group was also very experienced, and they would have likely known that fleeing the tents, leaving all their clothing, would have been far more dangerous than the threat of a second avalanche. All of this evidence, plus the fact that no snowdrifts were noted, meant that an avalanche was quite an unlikely culprit. The local indigenous Mansai tribes formed the basis for one theory that was common at the time of the event. There was a Mansai encampment to the northeast of the pass, and a Mansai trail led past the Jatlov group's camp, just 200 metres away. Many people suggested that the Mansai were well versed in the mountains and would have known how to hunt and then cover their tracks. Some claimed that the Mansai would not have taken lightly to people encroaching on their territory, whilst others claimed that the mountains were a spiritual ground and the group camping on the slope would have caused offence, leading to conflict. Much of this, however, has been put down to the misunderstanding of the Mansai people. The mountain, in fact, was not a spiritual ground at all, and the Mansai religion did not hold ground like this sacred in the first place, nor did the Mansai have any problem with people trekking through the mountains. One Mansai testified during the investigation that everyone goes to this mountain, Russian men and women and Mansai, there is no special prohibition to hike the mountain. There are other factors that go against this theory. The Mansai actually volunteered and helped in the search and rescue teams. There was a considerable sum of money found amongst the possessions, as well as alcohol, which was often used as currency amongst the Mansai, and was perhaps even more valuable than the money itself. If it was a Mansai attack, why would they have left such valuables? In fact, the Mansai did not even have any precedent of attacking people. There was one story of a Mansai attacking a Russian woman during the 1930s, but it was akin to that of urban legend and may well be attributed to suspicion of indigenous tribes by some Russians of the time. One of the longest standing and often touted theories is that the expedition fell victim to secret military testing of some sort, either rockets, chemical weapons or developmental weaponry, they either exploded and caused the injuries from force or could have poisoned them or scared them sufficiently to induce panic. Yuri Yudin himself was commonly a proponent of this theory who saw evidence amongst the recovered possessions that there were items of clothing that he didn't think belonged to the group. Foremost were items used to wrap around the feet that were a common military issue and he stated none of the team owned them. Many of the items of clothing found were noted to have been tested for radiation an unusual test to have been made in the first place. However, it was found that they were in fact radiated, showing that they had come into contact with some form. 
There were rumours that there was a secret military base nearby to the pass and the Soviets had tested rockets in the northern Aral Mountains before. Furthermore, there were reports from geologists staying in Ivdel that on the night of the incident, lights were observed in the sky over the direction of the pass. One fascinating aspect of this theory pertains to the camera found on Alexander Zolotaryov's body. Though the film was water damaged, the images were processed and seemed to show what some speculate were lights in the sky, possibly of planes and possibly of an explosion. Lev Ivanov, the man in charge of the investigation, also claimed later on that during the search they noticed that the tops of many trees had been burnt and it was forced by the KGB to remove any mention of lights in the sky from the report given by the various Mansai witnesses. This theory, however, doesn't explain why only some of the members had such forceful injuries. The radiation on the clothing, though present, was later found to be inconsequential and there were no positive results from toxicology testing on the bodies. Further, there's no real evidence that shows testing of weapons over the past, though naturally this doesn't discount secret tests that might have taken place. Following on from military testing theory, the logical leap for some is that UFOs or aliens could have been the cause. Much of the same evidence for the military testing is cited as proof. The burnt trees, the reports of lights in the sky, Zolotaryov's photos, etc. However, one other piece of information used to bolster the theory comes from testimony of Lev Ivanov, the leader of the investigation. As we heard in the previous theory, he was the man who testified that the tops of the trees had been burnt and that he was forced to remove mentions of light in the sky from the reports. Shortly after the incident, he became unusually fascinated by UFO phenomena. Throughout the 1960s, he made several requests to the KGB archives for information on UFO sightings. This is peculiar in itself, given that this man held a high legal position, and at the time, UFO phenomena were regarded as a pseudo-religious interest in an ideologically atheist Soviet Russia. Was it all just one man's leap in curious logic, or was he onto something with his theory? Did he know more than others, given his position in the investigation? The obvious flaw with this theory is that it is all speculation. There is, of course, no solid evidence that UFOs or aliens were to blame for the incident, but the testimonies from Ivanov are fascinating. One of the more bizarre theories involves a yeti coming across the group and frightening them out of their tents. The severity of the injuries and the doctors claim that they could not have been caused by another human are used to bolster this theory. There is perhaps one other piece of evidence and that is in frame 17 of the photos taken from Nikolai Thibault Brignol's camera. The image shows a figure in the background that many have claimed was a yeti stalking the group. In reality, it is likely it was simply another member of the group. There is no other evidence that any animal attacked them, let alone a yeti such as prints in the snow or any other animal tracks. This also doesn't explain why only some of the members had such injuries, whilst others closer to the camp were relatively unscathed in comparison. Theorised by Alexei Ratikin, it is posited that one or more of the team could have been KGB agents looking to meet with CIA agents to deliver samples of radioactive clothing to the spies and take photos of them. This theory suggests that the expedition was cover for their mission, However, the meeting went wrong and fighting ensued. 
Evidence put forward to bolster this theory is mainly centered around the backgrounds of certain members who had worked in secret Soviet institutes prior to the trip. Alexander Zolotaryov is the main contender for KGB spy, being that he was considerably older than the rest of the group, unknown to them, and had had a military career as well as a secret Soviet posting prior to the trip. He also had a camera that was found on his body which Yuri Yedin stated was not known to the group. It's also known that at least one camera that the group was using later went missing. Whilst this all sounds far-fetched, remember that this was the height of the Cold War and certainly we now have evidence and concrete proof of much more bizarre events that happened between the KGB and the CIA during this era. However, this theory has been roundly debunked by family and friends of members of the expedition, as well as many research groups who flatly deny any evidence to support it. New research suggests that a rare weather phenomena may have caused the expedition members to flee in irrational fear. The general theory goes that in certain circumstances, wind can hit certain elements of terrain creating a series of vortices known as Kármán Vortex Street. This would create infrasound, vibrations which produce sound below the range of human hearing that is known to create panic, anxiety, difficulties with breathing and nausea. Perhaps it's feasible that this panic would have driven the expedition out of their tent and into the cold night. These phenomena are widely reported in similar conditions to those of Jatov Pass, amongst many other peaks, and it has been suggested that the peak of the mountain could have created such vortices the sound then carrying down through the pass. The main proponent of this theory was Donny Icar, who spent five years researching the incident and came to the conclusion of infrasound causing the event, stating that it is the only logical explanation. Despite all of the theories, we're still left with something of an unexplained mystery. Much can be explained, but we're still left with many unanswered questions. No one theory can wrap up all events that took place, and due to lack of any witnesses, it will likely stay that way, barring any great future revelations or undiscovered documents coming to light. Many of the concrete theories have sensationalised certain aspects of the evidence that was simply not true, and the reality is that we are left with a genuine unsolved mystery, one which will probably unlikely ever be solved. Boom, the Dyatlov Pass. There's a lot to sort of go through. I think we'll just kind of go through the theories again uh, after these adverts. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Avey. Season one relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com.
Ads are a pain in the butt, right? So do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark History's Patreon, you get ad-free versions of the show with early access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers, exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store, and all that other good stuff. You get content from me, you get videos, I give like little running commentary and behind the scenes of how I make the show. And by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening and let's get back to the episode. So this is a crazy story. Everyone has their own kind of... I think, well, everyone who knows about it, and I think a lot of people know about it, it's, it's a really common mystery, this one, isn't it? It's really huge. It's been covered by a lot of people, and I think everyone sort of has their own theory as to what happened. I personally am not entirely sure. I think I can buy the infrasound. I can buy the KGB Cold War angle because I think that was bonkers. But all the others, I think, are probably nonsense. So we can kind of go through some of them. I don't think it was an avalanche. I think it's quite obviously not, actually. The, the, the evidence is quite strong that it wasn't an avalanche. Just by looking at the pictures, you can see with the ski poles and skis sticking out of the snow, if the avalanche was enough to knock the tents down, it would also have been enough to have pulled those out of the snow and they're standing up. And you, when you see the pictures, it, it's not even a slope, really. You can see that they actually camp on, on quite a level ground. The picture makes it look like a slope. But if you look at the background, the background sloped as well. So when you straighten it, basically when you correct it so that the horizon is straight, they're, they're actually camping on quite a, a level ground. So I I don't know if I can buy the by the avalanche um, theory whatsoever. So that's that one in the bin. The the Mansai one equally is in the bin straight away. You know that that's exactly, like that, that's just prejudiced. A lot of the people that basically complained and thought it might be Mansai were essentially just prejudiced against them for being indigenous, sort of an indigenous tribe. And it seems that that was quite common at the time. They, that there was a couple of other incidents, like in the years prior to this, that that the same thing happened, where someone went missing and they just blamed the Mansai for it for no reason other than that they were the indigenous tribes. So that one's that in the bin straight away. Military testing. So you look at I, I can sort of buy that because I've seen the rolls of film, obviously, and. I don't believe they were aeroplanes. I mean, some of them, people say, oh, you know, that looks like an aeroplane. Well, it really doesn't. It's just like a, a light on the film. And I, and I find it hard to see an aeroplane in it myself, personally. But I can buy that it was some sort of missile test because I, I actually looked up, when I was researching this, I looked up the um, Soviet missile silos for... Uh, and uh, military bases, and they were all around the area where they were staying. Uh, some of them were secret back then, but they're known about now. And others were not so secret, 
And then there's probably some also that are still secret even now that we just never knew about and are even sort of abandoned in the middle of Siberia or, you know, we just we just don't know. So I can buy that. And the fact that people said that they saw lights in the sky the night before, said there's the photos on the film of lights or what looked like lights. They could just be damaged to the film, but they look like lights in the sky. The burnt treetops is, is, is definitely strange. And just the fact that he had to remove mentions of lights in the sky from his investigation is very strange. So I can buy that. But the thing is, if the tops of trees being burnt, that could have been at any time. That could have been from anything else. And it could also have been windburn, I guess. If it was in a pass, I I, I, I wouldn't know. But I, I've seen windburn on trees before from similar situations where you go to the bottom of a valley and the top and the sort of trees from about halfway up are all got windburn where the tree, where the winds sort of whipped down a valley and just caught the tops and and so you don't really know i mean it says the tops of the trees were burnt but wind burn and burn looks quite similar sort of leaves the trees bare essentially and and it so i don't know it could be that because they're in a pass so it might be that but who knows but i think that's quite a good theory i I, i'm i don't really have a theory that i agree with and don't agree with i mean actually i've got loads i don't agree with but I don't really have like a nailed on kind of my pet theory, if you like, for this. But there are a few that I kind of agree more so. And I think that's one of them is is the testing. UFOs, again, I, I, no, I'm, I can't, no, no. Uh, it's not that I don't believe in UFOs or anything, but just in this case, I think, you know, why would you jump to UFOs when there's so many other theories which are much more earthly and grounded? And, you know, UFOs to me seems a little bit like God of the Gaps, like how, well, what happened? Don't know, therefore UFOs. It's, it's I don't know if I can buy that. Uh, the only part that I find interesting is that the guy afterwards got really into UFOs, but, you know, that's not that weird. It doesn't have to be anything to do with Diatlo for him to have done that. It, given his position, it could have been anything that kind of sparked that interest in him. So I don't really go for that one. And it's equally with Yeti as well. I've seen the picture, the picture that's supposedly a Yeti. No, it's just one of the group just in the background. That's all it is. Yeah, there's no need to think that's a Yeti, really. I say so, I can't really get with that one. KGB agents is another one that I can definitely get with just purely because I say that it sounds a little bit out there. And I wouldn't know what they were doing as KGB agents or why. But my experience with the Cold War, not that I was in the Cold War, but my experience of things I've read about the Cold War, and because it's kind of an interest of mine, I really, I'm, 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 it's one era in history that I that I can be endlessly fascinated about and read about. And from my experience of reading about the Cold War. There were absolutely bonkers things going on that would make, you know, Hollywood films, but they were real. And the Cold War is full of stories like that, where, you know, you think, no, this can't be true, but it, but it really was. And, you know, we have, con- they're not, they're not conspiracy theories or, or wild, you know, tinfoil hat theories. 
they're full on legit concrete evidence proof of these things happening throughout the cold war there was all sorts of spy gubbins and stuff like that so i i can buy that something about this had to you know was it perhaps spies related or kgb related but why i i have no idea and what would the point would be i have no idea but there are some interesting facts like uh, the fact that the clothes were there that yuri yudin didn't recognize alexander zolotaryov is very suspicious to me he was much older than the group and he'd had all those positions before he was you know he's had a military career and then a secret service career he seems to be like the number one suspect and then a camera went missing that they knew was there but another camera that they didn't know turned up you know, all of this stuff sort of leads me to think, yeah, it seems far-fetched, but knowing the Cold War, who knows? Because the Cold War was a time where things just seemed to go absolutely bonkers, absolutely bananas. So I, I can kind of get with that. I wouldn't know why, and I wouldn't like to even try and explain why, and I wouldn't sort of have a guess as to who was doing what. But I'm definitely willing to accept that it was possibly something to do with KGB and things like that. But I mean, what what would have... I don't know. The other thing that sort of makes me feel like it's possibly something like that is when you look at all their wounds, in particular, Dyatlov's, Igor Dyatlov's wounds were defensive wounds. A lot of his wounds were defensive wounds on the backs of his hands and the backs of his arms. So... That seems strange to me. And there was a few of them. There's a couple of other members with defensive wounds as well. So, uh, yeah, I can get with that, definitely. And the infrasound one as well, I can get with that. I can I can see where they're coming from there. I can see them sort of being in the tent and it, the infrasound sort of freaking them all out. And they kind of, you know, it's late at night. They hear it. Perhaps they thought it was an avalanche or something with this like kind of rumbling panic. So they all kind of get out of their tents. They don't know what's going on. It's all a little bit nightmarish. I can see that fully. So yeah, I, I can see, I can honestly sort of see that. The other sort of theory that I didn't include, but I can see is that um, it could be something to do with the stove that he took on the trip. Just... They, you know, they, they, they cooked in the tent with stoves in a tent. Now, that to me doesn't seem like a wise thing to be doing. They were, you know, they had the experience. So, you know, I'm sure they knew what they were doing, but that doesn't seem all that wise to me. But, yeah, so that's pretty much that. I, I have no idea when it comes to it, really. I'm not going to even try and pretend to solve it. It's just a great mystery, though. And it does have so many facets to it that are fascinating and as I say I wrote off like UFOs, Yeti and stuff like that but I love that angle with it as we sort of get through the podcast you'll probably learn that I'm quite sceptical but the thing is it doesn't stop me enjoying reading those theories any less it doesn't you know I'm, I'm not a killjoy sceptic I, I love all those theories so I can you know I love reading them and aliens maybe it was who knows do you know I don't it's as much as a chance as anything crazy from the KGB, so why not? Just a great mystery, isn't it? I um, 
it's a real sad mystery when you actually look at it. Nine very young people who were probably really, if you think about it, in the kind of prime of their lives with their whole sort of lives ahead of them, really. Most of them had just sort of graduated university, probably quite a promising life in front, ahead. And then this happened. But it's so long ago that it's 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 almost too easy to overlook that and just see it as a, just a, a fascinating mystery. And at the end of the day, it is what it is. And it is a really fascinating mystery that we're probably never going to find out about, the, you know, never going to find the answers to. But anyway, we'll leave that there. If you'd like to contact me, go to darkhistories.com. You'll find email form there. You can find links to all our social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I use Instagram the most, to be honest, and Twitter a bit. If you'd like to support, that'd be amazing. Uh, we've got Patreon, Coffee, an Amazon wishlist, things like that. That's all on the website. If you can support, I'd really appreciate it. Um, it goes a long way to helping the show improve which is something that you're getting the benefit from right now because these are all re-recorded episodes because I actually recorded these a long time ago with much worse microphones and I've come back with my newer equipment which I bought from Patreon Money and I'm re-recording the entirety of season one so you know if this is the first time you've listened to season one and you're thinking hey, this guy's got great sound quality for his episode three. That's why. So yeah, if you can, you know, support, that'd be amazing. Other than that, thanks for listening. See you in a couple of weeks. Sleep tight.